Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 86 of the SLS Cast. Yes ladies and gentlemen, it is the Octacontai Kai Hexahedron episode of the SLS Cast. And I'm not going to say it again, you can just rewind it and listen to it like 15 times so that you too can figure out what the hell an Octacontai Kai Hexahedron is. In case you don't know what it is already, it would be a solid figure with 86 planar sides. And with that little bit of tongue-twisting information, I, of course, am your fresh back from vacation, Matt. (laughs) How was your vacation? How was the lovely state of New Mexico? Oh my god, I was up in Cloudcroft, New Mexico. It's 9,000 feet above sea level. And it was amazing. It truly, honestly, I I really gotta say that it was the most relaxing vacation i have ever had really seriously i mean don't get me wrong i love going to disney and and doing all that fun stuff i i really enjoy when i would go to uh florida and go see my grandpa and everything before he passed away but i mean just none of those vacations have ever truly been just relaxing calming stress-free vacations this one was i i mean you're you're up in the mountains, so clearly you're already having nice views. Uh, it was sixty degrees like all the time. You could go forty minutes down the mountain to Alamogordo, which is still like forty five hundred feet above sea level, and that's like a hundred degrees down there. But even then, it's like super arid, and even then, there's still like wind, so it's a hot wind, but. It's still comfortable. It's not unbearable heat like it is here in Houston when it's 105 and you're, like, fucking melting. But So we had that. We're in this isolated cabin backed up against the National Forest. And there was a killer. <laughs> Late at night when the elk are making their noises and, like, you can just hear creaking and you're looking up and the only thing that's lighting the sky are the stars you could think that if you didn't know where you were you could totally think oh my god something is in the woods and it's going to kill me so matt what kind of noises do elks make would you be so kind to uh to demonstrate i i really wouldn't but it is somewhere between it is somewhere between a cross between someone not good at playing the bugle and a cow (laughs) isn't that what a cow sounds like all the time though no and believe, oh, and because it's also cattle country out there, people do have cattle, uh, small heads of cattle that pretty much just roam free. Uh, so we got to see elk, we got to see cattle, we got to see some deer, um, we even got to see bats and hummingbirds, all sorts of different wildlife, depending on the time of day or whatever. And one afternoon, we actually heard uh, cow rape. As it turns out, they do that. I didn't know that, and it was really kind of creepy to listen to that. A cow raping another cow, or a cow yes, raping a, a human? Yes, a bull having his way multiple times with another cow. And she didn't seem to be appreciating it any of the times that it occurred at all. So th- there was that. Don't they ever not really appreciate it more than once? <laughs> you, you would think that... 
Maybe after the first time she'd have seen it coming and left or something? I don't know, but yeah, it's just... No pun uh, intended there, eh? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's one of those things. But yeah, so we had a blast. We went and hit a couple of places in Alamogordo, drove around the mountains and stuff like that that were out there, and had a, just a ton of fun. Did weird stuff, like we went to a, a, a pistachio farm, because <laughs> my wife wanted to go to a pistachio farm she's like oh my dad likes pistachios and look there's a pistachio farm so we're like okay well maybe we'll just go pick up some pistachios for your dad no we ended up going on a tour of the pistachio farm after taking pictures at the world's largest pistachio and uh yeah look out world's largest ball of twine you ain't got nothing and we took this tour. Turns out the tour was actually fun. Now, I've got to say it was because of the tour guide. This chick was absolutely hilarious and uh, took the jokes, you know, like would joke with whatever you'd say. And then if you were like, you know, trying to, you know, make a joke at her expense, was able to spin it on you pretty well. So it made it a lot of fun. And it turns out that uh, you get to make a lot of sex jokes with pistachios because, for instance, as a nut tree... The female tree of the species is the one that bears the nuts. So the boys have no balls. The boys have no nuts, as they say. But on the flip side of that, it's there's one male tree for every 20 female trees. So I, you know, th- so you get a lot of action. She said that uh, most guys after they leave this tour say they want to be reincarnated as a pistachio tree. Did your kids get the get the reference at all? Or? No, thankfully that kind of stuff went over their heads. But still, it was great. We're all laughing, having a great time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so it was really kind of cool to see that you know see pistachios growing and see how they get farmed and all that kind of fun stuff. But yeah, and then of course we also did the New Mexico Museum of Space History, which was really cool. And I highly recommend anybody who lives in that area or if you ever plan to go, do check it out. Probably the coolest stuff they had out there was this pair of whispering dishes and they look just like satellite dishes and they are the the satellite dish itself is about uh, I don't know probably four feet in diameter and then the second dish is about 50 60 feet away and you can literally if you're standing at either side of these satellite dishes basically you can whisper into them like this and hear them pristine you hear the person pristine from like a hundred feet away it's ridiculous it was so cool to do that and yeah technology's badass yeah so honestly it was just a ton of fun but i was but while i was there i did listen to our show and i heard you asking me a question I remembered you asking me a question about, you know, have I ever shat my pants being, you know, in a particular situation or not. Oh, I can't and, wait to hear this. How How is this going to come back? <laughs> well, I actually, I, I asked you to download something. Yes. And I, I would love if you would please take just a few moments and listen to what I have given to you. Please, please go ahead. Play that file. All righty. Shit your pants if you want to, let the ground flow from behind. 
Cause if I shit my pants and you don't shit your pants, then you're no friend of mine. So shit your pants where you want to, anywhere you feel is fine. And we can say that it's normal and that you smell bad, leave our sense for you to find. We'll shit our pants. <laughs> we can go when we want to. The pants are Please tell me you were on the toilet while you were recording those. No, no, I, I was inspired and broke out my tablet and started writing down uh, and writing it out, and I worked that whole thing out while I was in New Mexico. Just for you, because you tried to sing it, you tried to do that off the cuff, and you couldn't do it. And I was sitting there, and I was like, man, you know, that actually could work, because safety dance sounds a lot like shit your pants. And, uh, yeah, so I decided to do that just for you. And there you go. Shit your pants, shit your pants, everybody should take the chance. Well, I will say this. It was very creative, and you kind of sound like somebody from South Park when you sing it. It's okay. So I, I was, you know, that's all right. Well, thank you. I, that gave me a colon cleanse without actually receiving <laughs> a physical colon cleanse. <laughs> well, good. Well, good. Well, good. Well, then, let's do it, sir. Let's go ahead and get right to it. It is, of course, the news. <laughs> So, yes, the news. Tim, since I have been doing the vast majority of the talking and singing so far on the show, uh, w- would you like to start? Sure. Uh, first off, we're going to talk about a little uh, little bit of piracy as well as the UK. In fact, it's media piracy in the UK. This is from a cinemablend.com article entitled Media Piracy is Being Decriminalized in the UK, written by Mike Reese or Rice. I think it's Reese. And this is what it says. Piracy. A scourge so great, there are not one, but two, sometimes three, separate warnings when you rent a film to watch in the privacy of your own home. As if there weren't enough, there's always the scattered news stories of criminal proceedings being leveled against some of the field's greatest offenders. Not to mention... There once was a time where theaters would run PSAs before the movie that interviewed industry professionals about the direct effects of piracy efforts on their jobs. One could say that piracy is one of our greatest digital concerns worldwide, which is why the UK's new strategy is drawing a lot of attention. They're decriminalizing the act. The Dissolve ran a story earlier detailing the Voluntary Copyright Alert Program, or VCAP for short, which is set to take effect in 2015. VSAP notifies parties who have downloaded media illegally about the drawbacks and indecency of pirating said media, and is set up to do so up to four times a year. After those four notifications, nothing else ever comes of the matter. You're not going to be fined or jailed or prosecuted. You're just going to be notified again four times next year. The Voluntary Copyright Alert Program aims to, as Jeff Taylor, the chief executive of the British phonograph industry, put it, 
Persuade the persuadable. The persuadable, in this case, are parents who don't know that their connection is being used to download things like the latest episode of Game of Thrones. Taylor further remarked on the intent of VSAP as, quote, Not about denying access to the internet. It's about changing attitudes and raising awareness so people can make the right choice. End all quotes. What do you think about this, Matt? Do you think uh, this little slap on the wrist thing and saying that you are a very naughty boy, you better quit downloading those movies and television programs because that is wrong. That is not nice. You should not do that. You are a very naughty, naughty boy. I don't know. If if it's done in that exact manner, I would probably stop. I, I mean, because it would, it would be funny the first few times, but then after that it would just get really fucking annoying and I would probably just stop so I wouldn't have to hear that anymore. But in all seriousness, I don't know. Okay, I couldn't quite grasp it. So what happens after the fourth time? You said that they get four warnings, but then what happens after the fourth warning? They just get four warnings. And I guess if it continues to happen, maybe there will be four more warnings and then okay. four more I, warnings. Well, I think the idea here where you're decriminalizing something that, for, for the most part, is so intensely difficult to prove in the first place, I think that's smart. But... Because then you don't have, you know, nine-year-olds getting sued for $250,000 times 2,700 violations. But on the same token, and I appreciate the fact that, like, they're trying to target parents and people who would be like, oh, I didn't realize it, or, you know, I'm not the most internet savvy, so, okay, fine, I'll stop. But, I mean, if there's really no bite to it i i mean i appreciate that they're trying to make some middle ground and just inform people and not have ludicrous lawsuits and things of that nature but at the same time i think that if you're going to give them that much forewarning and that much leeway i think there's got to be a little bit of teeth at the end of that so that people will say okay cool i appreciate it i now know what's going on so that you know i can stop but I think it's all stupid anyway. I really think that if, uh, as iTunes proved so many times, as Netflix has proved um, all over the place, that if you just make things available and price them properly, the people will buy them. I, uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question, did I? <laughs> no, that's fine. But what's interesting <laughs> here is in the article they ask, is legislation really our only option? And this guy, Mike... Uh, what's his name again? Mike Reese has a couple uh, couple other suggestions. He says that media piracy in any way, shape, or form comes down to two big factors. Accessibility and affordability. So, basically what you just said, Matt. These two key sticking points are from where the act of piracy springs forth. And if this industry is going to claim to be serious about piracy, perhaps... They should be looking at how to change the way they do business. For instance, perhaps instead of prosecuting citizens under clause upon clause of copyright law and threatening jail terms, usually reserved for more serious offenses, the providers of content being pirated can consider updating their distribution method and pricing models to reflect the needs of the market. So, I think uh, a lot of people feel the same way that you do. Then there you have it. I guess I did answer the question <laughs> in a very bass-ackwards kind of way. 
All right, well, first up from me comes from animenewsnetwork.com.au. This is, of course, the Anime News Network, and uh, this is some very, very cool news. Very good news, and it comes to them courtesy of Daniel Zelter. The Tracking Board is reporting that American director Gus Van Sant of Goodwill Hunting and Milk will direct Warner Brothers' planned live-action film adaptation of Sugumi Oba's and Takashi Obata's Death Note manga. Iron Man 3 director Shane Black had said in an interview last year that he was still connected to the project, but the Tracking Board lists that Van Sant has replaced him. The website is also reporting that... Vertigo's Roy Lee and Doug Davison, along with Lynn uh, Lynn Pictures' Dan Lynn and Bran Witten, are still attached to the project to produce. I am so very excited. This, I saw, I watched the uh, anime of this, and holy shit, does this have the potential to be like just an absolutely amazing series. You could, I mean, if you do this thing right, you could actually carry this on like Harry Potter and literally make like seven or eight movies out of this thing. This is at least, at the bare bones, at least an amazing trilogy that they could pull off with this thing. I don't know. Have you ever, are you familiar at all with Death Note? Yes, I am. And I've been thinking that it would have made a great seri- movie series or even a mini series for uh, ever since I first heard about it, probably oh, about man. five, six years ago. Yeah, I, I would just absolutely love it. And, I mean, this is something that has been floating around for almost five years now. But um, I am, I, I'm just glad whenever you see new names attached to things like this, especially the things that are quickly approaching development hell after, again, because Warner Brothers uh, acquired the rights um, back in 2009. So, I mean, this is to tell you just exactly how long this has been in development. So when you see something and you get real traction on it, it, it just goes to show that it's it's not over yet. It still could happen, and it looks like it's going to. So, very excited there. And uh, what do you got next, sir? More CinemaBlend.com news, and it pertains to a superhero villain Marvel movie, or a Marvel superhillin, a Marvel superhero villain team-up movie, or however you what it call it and it sound a lot better than how I just said it which I'm pretty sure there is a better way of saying it uh, and this is what this article says were written by Gabe Toro entitled James Gunn wants to bring Marvel's best villains into one vicious movie this was taking taken from uh, an interview that James Gunn the director of the upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy an interview that he had with Screen Rant and he was asked if he would do a Thunderbolts movie, and this is what he said. Quote, Thunderbolts? I will tell you. One time I was saying to Kevin Feige, we were sitting on set together on one of the days he visited, and I said, you know, I really want to make Thunderbolts. And he said, James, if Guardians does well, you'll be able to do whatever you want. So we'll see what happens. End quote. The Thunderbolts started out in the comics as a group of reformed villains who cleaned up the Marvel Universe while the heroes were away. Founded by the evil Baron Zemo, they earned the people's trust. Though secretly, they were planning a major coup against the rest of the world. 
Later incarnations of the Thunderbolts dropped that angle and just became groups of villains who turned into heroes. The current version of the Thunderbolts on shelves now consists of darker-edged heroes like Deadpool, the Punisher, and Red Hulk basically running Black Ops missions. Now, if the current Marvel movies attempted Thunderbolts, it would probably just be a villain team-up of the Avengers, which means you'd probably have Tom Hiddleston's Loki, Hugo Weaving's Red Skull, maybe Robo Arnim Zola, Samuel Stern from The Incredible Hulk, who was last seen mutating into the leader, and maybe Sam Rockwell's Justin Hammer from Iron Man 2. Which is still pretty awesome, even before you include Avengers Age of Ultron baddies like Ultron and Baron Von Strucker. End all quotes. And they actually go on to say that sadly you'll be missing out on Magneto, Green Goblin, and Doctor Doom. I mean, it kind of stinks. It seems like something like this would... uh, It it might be me. Would be cooler if they had access to all the villains. But... Uh, you know, from from different I, Marvel storylines, but I, I don't know. What, what do you think, man? Do you think this is a crummy idea? Because I know about uh, last October, uh, I talked about how Universal is wanting to take their classic monsters and create a big classic Universal horror movie, horror monster matchup of a team movie or whatever. The only problem I see with something like this is that I there's just really. No story big enough to contain a ton of villains, per se. I mean, that, and that's really it. I mean, you can... What works in a group of superheroes having to combine their strengths in order to tackle one large evil does not work with a bunch of villains getting together to try and do anything even remotely similar. Not even to the point of having, oh, well, we've got 20 good guys, we should just have two or three bad guys. And the proof in the pudding of that is Batman and Robin. And to a lesser extent, Batman Forever, and to an even lesser extent, Batman Returns. When you have one bad guy versus one good guy, you're good. And when you have someone who is so amazingly evil that they're able to take over the world and they need a bunch of good guys to help, that's cool too. But the moment that you start dividing bad guys up, you take away from any real threat and then it just becomes it, it just becomes too many names involved with a project and no one no no character ever gets developed properly. So, I, I guess, long story short, too late, I know. I, I, I don't like it. I'm not for it. I, I don't think Marvel's... I think Mar- Marvel's not going to hold back on anything once they get a few more hits under their belts. Well, I don't... I, I, okay, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't open the universe up and let really cool ideas come to the fore and bring smaller or lesser-known or B-list 
comic book characters and let them have their own movies and stuff like that. I've got no problem with that. And even in terms of Guardians of the Galaxy and, and everything else, I understand that they're still loosely trying to tie into the greater Marvel Universe picture so that they can always bring, you know, you've got, you know, Age of Ultron and all that kind of stuff down the road, Ant-Man and those things, so that you could eventually, you could figure out a way to try and bring a mass of Marvel villains together to do that. Versus different versions, like you were, you know, with Red Hulk and, and whatever, different versions of existing characters to see alter egos and what have you. But again, when you try to, when you try and do it with bad guys, it doesn't, it just, the dynamics don't work the same way. And I don't care how big the universe gets, that actually begins to make it worse. Because not only are you going to have to try and figure out a way to justify combining these universes um, or combining these different storylines or whatever so that you can bring all these characters together, you still have to give further, further development for the characters, good and or bad, depending on what you're trying to do. And there's only so much screen time. Yeah. No, I definitely, I totally agree with you. And... How I felt with the Avengers, and one of the main reasons why I didn't personally love the Avengers is because it felt like every... It was a movie made up of money shots, because you had so many characters <laughs> and so many great superheroes that it was just like, ooh, what's going to be the cool shot? And like, the, the famous, you know, whatever... And when everybody thinks about the Avengers... They think about that trucking around shot of all the heroes, you know, like landing and standing up and all the smoke and all that. It's like, that's not that great of a shot, but people remember it because it's like, oh my God, there's Scarlett Johansson, there's Hawkeye, there's uh, the Hulk, there's Thor, there's Captain, there all these people together. And it's like, they're, you know, it's not really that great of a shot. Your people are just jizzing your pants because there's... <laughs> Now, see, see, that's the money shot, yeah. is jizzing your pants. <laughs> that's the true money shot right there. <laughs> which which is why I laughed when you said money shot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, no, and again, I totally agree, though. I mean, I, seriously. Um, I still thought Avengers was a great movie. I don't think it's... It, I think that the, what made Avengers so good and the things that are so forgivable as to why people like the Avengers is because all of those... Well, save Black Widow and Hawkeye... All of those characters all got at least one establishing movie, if not two. Technically, all of them got two. So all of that character development and stuff, you didn't you didn't need any of that for the Avengers because all of that already took place. Right? Is that do you, do you follow? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I so, so you got agree with all you. that. So that's why people love the Avengers for all the eye candy and forgive most of the plot failings because you don't have to have all that because now you're just get you've you've loaded them all up and got them ready for bear and now yes that's all it is it's all as you so eloquently put it money shots, but because you didn't need anything else because everything else had already been done. Well, right, and and, and like. And how I felt with, now we're kind of going off topic, but... Ah, whatever. My thing with money shots is that what's so cool about, like, uh, at least... I mean, I guess Skyfall kind of did it, uh, but with uh, some of the older James Bond movies, you all you could always expect James Bond to say something cheeky or say something sexy. You know, it's just like that. It's not necessarily a money shot, but you're, like, having that catchphrase at least once or twice throughout a James Bond movie, and it's like once it happens, people love it and eat it up and all that stuff. Now, how I felt with Avengers, or the Avengers, is that that happened 
so much through the movie that the entire movie, not again, I'm not saying it's totally a bad thing, became kind of a gimmick. And that's how I feel maybe an all-villains movie would be. And also you mix in what you were talking about beforehand with the, the lack of a backstory with all the villains and trying to come up with a reason, you know, why, you know, why are the superheroes not there and all this stuff. It, it'll be, you know, a little, little annoying. Indeed. All right, well, let's see here. Next up for me, coming from to us from Deadline.com, courtesy of Anthony D'Alessandro. Comic-Con, Quentin Tarantino confirms Hateful Eight is a go. Unrelated talks, Django Unchained Zorro comic book. After being prodded by a fan's question, Quentin Tarantino confirmed that he is moving forward with his feature western, The Hateful Eight. The announcement was made at Dynamite Comics' panel for the Django Unchained Zorro crossover comic book. Everyone in room C, B, C, F. I'm sorry, six BCF erupted with cheers. Now, they go into great detail about covering why and how they're going to do this comic book uh, on the crossover for Django Unchained for Django and Zorro. Even to the point that when he told when Tarantino told Jamie Foxx about it, he said. Jamie Foxx asked, you know, he's like, hey, well, let's make this movie. Let's go get Antonio Banderas and make the movie. What I want y'all to take away from all this is that The Hateful Eight is getting made. After all the hemming, all the hawing, all the rolling around, all the rigmarole, it's getting made. I knew it was going to get made. Yeah. Knew it the whole goddamn time. Although from the fucking second he got all upset about it, I knew it was getting made. And I, although I would like to close with this because despite that, Tarantino is still the man. The, uh, the, this here closes with the following. When asked by a fan if he would make a movie that wasn't rated R, Tarantino yelled, and I quote, Fuck no! End quote. That, which, which goes back to our last episode about the whole PG-13 rating thing. But uh, anyways. Yes, I will end off with a trailer uh, actually, what I think is the most uh, surprising and enjoyable trailers that have come out within the past uh, couple weeks. Actually, the last trailer I loved was the movie Boyhood, which I'm really excited to go and check out. With it being Comic-Con, we have the new Ma uh, Mad Max Fury Road trailer. We have various people talked about a little Batman vs. Superman teaser trailer they saw at Comic-Con. People were talking about the you know the the gray the Fifty Shades of Gray trailer that just recently came out. All of these trailers are debuting and people are eating them up. But there's one trailer that I found to be more exciting than all of those put together. And I, I just it, it's a, it's of a documentary, and I love these kind of lost in la mancha type of documentaries where it easily could have been a supplement feature on a blu-ray or dvd for batman or superman or whatever but it's not it's going to get its own feature length documentary treatment and lost in la mancha is the story about terry gilliam's movie don quixote that he's tried making multiple times and in the early to mid 90s he tried making it with uh, with uh, with Johnny Depp, and it just talked about how the entire budget fell through and the production itself fell through. And, you know, I, just that documentary, that movie is so great. And this one I'm talking about is about the Superman Lives film 
that was never made. It was the long-lost Tim Burton, and get this, Nicolas Cage Superman movie. And the film will be called The Death of Superman Lives. And for those who don't know, it was supposed to be Tim Burton's reboot of the Superman franchise in the late 90s. Uh, Kevin Smith was going to write the script for it. Uh, Nicolas Cage was going to be Clark Kent and, you know, the Superman. And who knows how it would have been? I mean, what's great is that there's so much test footage of Nicolas Cage as Superman flying around. There's him with his costumes. And there's this great behind-the-scenes pre-production footage mixed in with these interviews that the director and producer is conducting with Tim Burton and the producers and and Kevin Smith. I think Kevin Smith is producing this documentary as well that I think it will be absolutely fantastic. So I highly recommend everyone going onto YouTube and checking it out. It is called The Death of Superman Lives and it talks about what happened to the production And I also believe they're looking for money. So if you're looking to donate any amount of money to a production, a film, a documentary, this would be a great one to give your money to. So check it out. Right on. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and close off the news very, very quickly here. Uh, This is a pair of stories from MoviePilot.com, courtesy of Rose Moore, following up by closing this out from io9.com courtesy of Ryan Bricken. Uh, Basically, these are both about uh, VFX test footage from the Deadpool movie that was leaked. And the moviepilot.com does actually still have it up and working as of this recording, which is July 28th, 2014. So if by the time you listen to it, it's not there, sorry. Um, but I do hope you get a chance to check it out. It's absolutely hilarious. If you're into Deadpool at all, it is everything Deadpool that you would expect. Again, this was VFX test, and it is true, legit test footage. Ryan Reynolds was doing the voiceover for it, uh, and it's very, very good. Nothing like what you think. Think back in Blade Trinity. It's that Ryan Reynolds. Um, this was the footage from 2011. So there's speculation that this was not an actual accidental leak it's just maybe they're trying to test the waters to actually see if they really should try and do a full-on Deadpool movie and so I'm going to close off the news with this quote from Bob uh, from Rob Bricken uh, from the io9.com article which is to that studio we are totally goddamn interested please make this movie at your earliest convenience thank you end quote and end of the news. Yes. All right. So that's going to lead us to. Did it age well? Yes. This is where we take a movie that is at least twenty years old, and we go back and watch it and ask the question and answer it subsequently. Did it age well? This week. On Did It Age Well, we cover the 1991 flick, What About Bob? Directed by Frank Oz and stars Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus. Now, this is, of course, a comedy film about a psychological patient who goes and basically drives his egotistical psychiatrist insane. This movie was a definite hit. It had a budget of $35 million and came in at $63 million. And 
Yeah. It's just very, very funny. I really, really, really like it. It's got an 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. I did see this movie in the theater because I'm an old fucking fart. And that's how these things work sometimes. And to answer the question in brief, did it age well? I have to say, yes. And here's why. There's nothing exceptional that truly dates the material. And that's the only reason I can give this a pass on Did It Age Well. There's nothing exceptional about the cinematography. And when I say nothing exceptional, there, I, I mean that as a compliment, not as it's bland, it's boring, it, 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 there's no reason for it to be uh, exceptional. No, it's that there's nothing that obviously dates the material. Uh, and I'm going to give the fashion a pass. It is slightly 90s in its fashion. But there's there's nothing technologically there, nothing cinematography. It's uh, cinema, uh, uh, in regards to the cinematography. The writing is simple, fresh, and basically tells a very simple tale that you can actually choose to enjoy the movie on the level that it's presented or you can also choose to actually look at the movie with a little bit more of a critical eye, especially if you've seen it before, and you can kind of see that even though Richard Dreyfuss's character, Dr. Leo Marvin, is a bit of a blowhard and is a bit of an asshole, when you watch the movie from his perspective, he's kind of got a point. Bob's a shithead. He's a funny shithead, you feel for him, but he's still a shithead. <laughs> and uh, you know, as as you hear me chuckle now, it does lend fresh perspective to the movie, and so you can enjoy this movie on a couple of different levels. And especially if you watched it when you were younger, looking at it from the lens of "Wow, what's going on?" And then, of course, as a parent, you see kind of you can see how it felt as a kid when you remember things, but you can look at things from the eyes of your parent uh, of being a parent and realize that. Things can be black and white, but there are also shades of gray that kids miss out on. And those kinds of shades of gray also fill in and inform the plot and give it additional narrative. I think at the end of the day, there are uh, still minor issues and stuff, mainly pacing issues, but it's a comedy. And comedies are really, really tricky on pacing. And I would say that in the second third of the movie is where you get the most of the pacing problems. But even still, that's an argument that I think could be held even into today's standards for comedies that are 20 years older or, you know, 20 years newer. For me, definitely like this movie, would still recommend this movie to this day. And I say, yes, it aged well. You know, really, the only thing that I can say that dates the movie, because it does pretty well at uh, at not referencing uh, stuff at that time, you know, like events or technology, I guess, because it, it, it just relies on the characters and the story itself to really, for the comedy to flow, and it doesn't get really too specific. And honestly, really, the only thing that does kind of sort of date the movie, but is the music. And because it's like that early night, late 80s, early 90s tech, you know, tech, tech, not techno, but uh, synthesized 
keyboard music, you know, do 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 or whatever. And but that's kind of it. And I mean, with that, you still it's not c- constant. You still have the orchestrational music. It's Frank Oz, and Frank Oz uh, in his movies, he kind of goes with the 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 Danny Elfman creepy type of route. Like you'll hear. His music in, uh, well, in this film, as well as The Stepford Wives and Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and Death at a Funeral, he uses that, <laughs> you know, people doing that stuff. A choral music in the background, but it, but at the same time, it's eerie and, you know, it's, it's, it's very subtle, but it's very effective because one thing I will say about, well, many things I'll say about the movie, but one thing right now that I will say about the movie is that, well, I haven't... My first time watching the movie from start to finish was just the other day. I didn't grow up watching this movie. Uh, I really... I forgot Richard Dreyfus was in it until uh, I saw... I recommended it on the show last week. And I, I I didn't know what to think about it. I knew going into it that this was a Frank Oz movie. I re, Even his worst films, the films that nobody likes, like The Stepford Wives, I kind of enjoyed it. Still, because it's, I think he he has a way of letting comedy and the performances play out on their own without using a lot of, like, uh, camera gimmicks. Like, you'll see a lot in this movie, the camera doesn't move that much. He doesn't cut that much. He edits, or uh, the, the movie is edited whenever you get a reaction shot... Uh, I mean, they, they utilize that quick cutting every once in a while, and, and it's kind of nice being able to sit back and watch the performances just play out on their own without the assistant of, or uh, without the assistance of, uh, of of people in the editing room trying to create comedy out of cutting the film together. But I was I, I don't want to disturbed isn't the correct word, but I felt kind of sad. While watching the movie, more so than than laughing hysterically, I, I was kind of sad. And I, I'm I'm not saying that I didn't enjoy the movie, but I think I enjoyed the movie in the way that wasn't really intentional. Maybe maybe it was. Maybe they knew that this movie could make people laugh out loud throughout the entire movie, and maybe it'll just kind of sadden some other people because it's. I, I think watching it. I realized that it's like, you know, there are real people like this. And Bill Murray played it so well that whenever you see him getting shot down and it really doesn't like, he doesn't really process it the same way like I I guess people that that don't have these type of phobias do. Even when he's being stranded in, in in the street, in the middle of nowhere, he thinks that it's it's some kind of like new new age new wave uh, uh, form of therapy that Richard Dreyfuss's character is imposing onto him. But no, really, his character he's just trying to you know get get him the hell away from him and his entire family. He just wants to you know go on his vacation and you know be happy and relaxed. And you know I I think more so than not, I I kind of felt sad for him, and it made for very weird movie-going experience. It was... It was it was strange. It was strange. But at the same time, I still enjoyed it. Um, I I thought that Richard Dreyfuss's character got angry too quick, and I thought him just exploding at the very end would have been funnier. 
But uh, hell, I guess now I'm just moving into a review about the movie. But, you know, to be honest, I mean, the movie does age well, or did age well, uh, with the exception of the rare occurrence of the music getting all super 80s, early 90s, techno-pop sounding. So, uh, do I recommend it? If you're a Bill Murray fan, if you're a Richard Dreyfuss fan, I definitely think you'd enjoy it. It's it's a very interesting one. I'll give it that. All right. Well, then, I think, then I'll take care of that. Next week, we're going to bring back Copycat Throwdown, and we're going to be covering Paul Blart Mall Cop versus Observe and Report. And, of course, these are the 2009 Mall Cop movies. One, of course, that stars Kevin James, which is the Paul Blart Mall Cop, versus the one that stars Seth Rogen in Observe and Report. We'll be comparing and contrasting those and figuring out which one wins the copycat throwdown. And I guess that brings us to the last segment, which is, of course, the movie. <laughs> folks this week's movies we got a four shot for you it was an unexpected four shot i really didn't think that this was going to happen but it came together at the last moment we're doing 2013's the immigrant we're doing barbarella from 1968 not fade away the 2012 drama film and transformers age of extinction where do you want to start sir uh let's start with uh not fade away not fade away. All right, 2012 drama film. It's the directorial debut of Sopranos creator David Chase, and it stars uh, John McGuire, uh, Jack Houston, and Bella Heathcote, with uh, uh, appearances by Brad Garrett and, of course, James Gandolfini. This is okay. This is kind of a cross between. It's not really coming of age because. We're talking about kids who are who are in college level, uh, going through and discovering life. So it's not really truly coming of age as much as it is kind of a movie about staking a claim for your own life. And it does feature young actors and, and telling a tale of of woe, I guess. Um, but really, and I, I don't find this movie to be as much of a dramatic statement as it is a character study. This, For me, I, th- I felt that this movie was more of a character study than some kind of dramatic statement. I, um, I didn't find anything that was really exceptional about this film. And now I'm using it to the detriment. I didn't find anything really exceptional about this film. Everything was competent um i don't know if this has any i i I don't know if it's because of the subject matter or the way that david chase chose to direct it because he wrote it as well but where he is a very good writer i think that he is not as strong as of a director I think he tried to bring the literal aspects of his writing 
and of the story itself and drop it in a cinematic form. And while I can applaud that effort, especially as someone who loves to read a book and wishes that you could really make a movie that was truly exactly like the book, there's a reason why there have to be certain concessions made when you tell a story in cinematic form. And that's why sometimes things get changed, for better or for worse, that's why things get changed when you make a movie based on a book. So you have good acting, uh, you have good writing, but I just the way that he chose to tell, the way that David Chase chose to tell this story was a little bit better than subpar. It's kind of on par. So for me, I really come away with this movie. And again, it's a, such a great period. I mean, if you like movies um, like Almost Famous, if, if you like movies, even to a certain to a small degree, segments of like Forrest Gump, if you, things that cover the Vietnam era and things that cover growing up during that time and things that cover the music of that era there are so many good things that could have come about this and such a great idea and such a good story but it's just again the execution really falls apart on this one and as much as i was really looking forward to it um i just i didn't like it i'm sorry it uh it's it's got promise but it the execution just wasn't there for me uh, 2.25, 2.25 stars for me on this one. Uh, Tim, I, I apologize. I'm not intentionally trying to butcher a, a movie if you like it. So <laughs> go ahead, sir. <laughs> Tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to hold it against you because uh, Ch- I watched it with Chelsea, the girlfriend, and she didn't like it either. And she was the one that recommended uh, uh, we watch it because... She loves the... Uh, oh, so so I have her to blame for this? Tell her I said thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> she did not like it either. I mean, I can definitely see why people don't like it, kinda. Because the movie is... I mean... I, I think the movie starts off being a little too much. Like, at the beginning, you have so much language... You know, they they throw around the F word so much, and then you go a while without hearing it, and then you start hearing it every so often, that it just sound, it just seemed like he just wrote that into the script for the sake of doing it. I, I don't know, to like grab people's attention, just have witty, Quentin Tarantino-esque dialogue. I mean, it's nothing like Quentin Tarantino's dialogue. I'm not even sure why I use that as an example, but just as a, as a way, as a device of hooking people into the story and just to show like how middle class, how white collar these kids were and to distinguish how they were different from their other family members, from uh, their friends, family members who were blue collar and all, all that stuff. Because, you know, I mean, apparently white collar kids spoke differently than uh, their uh, blue collared friends, as well as the family members themselves. People call this a coming of age movie this is not your run-of-the-mill coming-of-age tale. There's a lot of well-executed moments and scenes in it, and to me, it actually feels more, a lot more, uh, very more so fresh than other coming-of-age movies. It could also be not only what happens in the movie about these guys forming a band. It, it was, it was very smart. You know, it wasn't about like the the quick rise 
of a band forming and all of a sudden they are huge, you know, kind of like that thing you do, though I do love that thing you do. Uh, there, there's, I, it just shows kind of like all the, all the, all the, the real life problems that's, that, that, uh, especially bands in the sixties, let alone bands now, the problems and issues that they faced. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's an excellent scene about midway close to the end of the movie where they have this audition for this big, I think he's like a he's like a touring manager, producer guy or whatever in, in New York, and it's played by Brad Garrett. And he sits him down and says, "Guys, you know, you're, you you guys are good, but you I think you ought to spend the next six months touring, playing shows around the city, do shows seven nights a week, two shows a night. You know, and he's like, you have to pay your dues. That's how you become a band. You have to pay your dues. You learn. That's how you become a great band. And if you can." Deal with that. If you can find success doing that, then come back to me and I'll help you out. You don't hear that in a lot of movies. You know, especially movies about bands and or, or even like with actors and just anything revolving around stardom and entertainment and, and things of that nature. You just don't hear that kind of lines or those kinds of lines. And it was kind of refreshing in some ways. In addition, I thought it was very fresh... And uh, and interesting how that... I mean, there is definitely drama in the movie. There are dramatic elements. There are family issues in the movie. But I appreciated that they didn't take those elements and cram it down your throat. I mean, the movie has a nice mix of, of insinuation, of imagery. They don't have to have every dramatic moment be so dramatic and, and in your face. And I also appreciated the music not being the same freaking music that you hear in every single movie from the 60s. Yeah, you, I mean, you get some of that for sure. But you have a lot of great blues and great jazz that you never hear in the movies or really hear anywhere else. And they included it in the movie. And this is all thanks to little Steven Van Zant. He's the guitarist from Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. He has that show... Uh, a radio show, and you can also listen to him online, Little Stevens Underground Garage, where he plays. I mean, th- these are all these are his jams, and he was not only the producer for the movie, but he was also the music supervisor. And so, once I once I saw that credit, I thought that makes total sense because I really don't think anybody else could have pulled this soundtrack off as well as him. And I think that's another reason why I enjoyed it. I enjoyed this movie was the music selection. But I think one of the reasons, or one of the things that definitely solidified this movie as being a better than average of this type of film was the ending. And again, I'm not going to give anything away, but some, some people will say that the movie just ends. But if you pay attention, I mean, again, maybe I could just be getting more out of it than, uh, than what I should have, or ma- making something, making out something out of something that really isn't anything. But unlike all these other movies where Matt and I that we've watched, where movies just end, uh, kind of like Inside Lulin Davis, where it just kind of ended, and you can make a interpretation, you can interpret your own ending, but you just still really don't know. With this movie, I thought it had a, a very interesting movie, or excuse me, it had a very interesting ending, to where if you felt like you wanted to find 
an interpretation in the ending and figure out what the character's next step would be once you know the screen goes to black or whatever. I think I you know once you think about it for a little while, you would be able to figure that out. You just go through, look at all the the, the symbolism and all that stuff. So I enjoyed it. Uh, I d- I give this movie four stars. I thought it was well made, uh, though. I I agree with Matt. I thought the you know it does suffer some slight pacing issues, and and it does become a little too much every so often. But other than that, I you know I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, all right, seriously though, where do you want to go next, sir? Uh, how about uh, let's go on a sexual odyssey with Barbarella? Oh, I was hoping you'd say this one. All right. Barbarella, 1968 French-Italian science fiction film. This is based on a French comic book series called Barbarella, and it stars Jane Fonda, and she did this role, I guess, as a favor to her then-husband, Roger Vadim. She did it because she was fascinated with the director's work, and she uh, always wanted to work with him. Sure. She was also married to him, so I'm pretty sure that had more to do with <laughs> than that. Uh, and and uh, I guess this was also his way of saying, "Look how hot my wife is. Let me do, <laughs> let me do a ninety-eight minute showcase of how hot my wife is." And he uh, succeeded. Well, I will say that that this was definitely about as tasteful for you could get for nudity then, without actually showing the goods. I guess as was possible at that time. This is quite possibly one of the dumbest movies I have ever seen. However, it was exceptionally dumb and made it funny. Very, 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 very funny. The thing is, it's not meant to be funny. It is meant to be, I think, serialized, a la Flash Gordon, uh, and the basis for what would be Indiana Jones. But I think it was meant to be entertaining and not, I don't think it was, I don't think, and and, and by that I mean, of course, because all movies are meant to be entertaining. I mean that it was not meant, they were not trying to, say, take themselves too seriously or, or, or anything like that. But the movie is just is bad it's not a good movie it's a cult movie and it's very very clear why this is a cult movie um we have a chick who uh, just like in demolition man if you remember in demolition man sarah uh sandra bullock and sylvester stallone don't actually have sex because they put these little devices on their heads and then it like simulates sex and everything and of course that you know they take care of that by the end of the movie well, they have a very similar thing here because Barbarella, they, they don't have sex. They don't have traditional sex. Um, when Barbarella starts the movie, they, they take like this, they have devices that they hold hands with or whatever, they touch hands or something like that. And then, but she does find out just exactly how good sex can be. And when she does, boy, she just can't get enough of it. Um, this is borderline exploitation film. Um, and again, just, it's just not a good movie. It's funny, 
But it's not meant to be ha-ha funny. Again, it's not meant to take itself seriously. It is supposed to be light and entertaining in that regard. And I do think that there are certain scenes that are meant to be farcical um, not and not serialized. For example, at the very beginning of the movie when Barbarella is met by the president of Earth and given her assignment, that's meant to be farcical. So yes, that's meant to be funny. But as the movie plays out, it's again meant to be serialized but not entirely farcical because it's based on a comic book and yet despite those things it's just not good it's funny it's but it's mst3k funny and the sad part is is that i don't want to say that about this movie because there's a movie coming up that not even mst3k could save and I don't want to insult MST3K that way. So, I'm going to go ahead and just say two and a half stars. The movie is okay. Based on the fact that it was funny, but not entirely intentionally so. And yet, there are some farcical things, and there are some serialized things that are interesting to watch for the movie. And you get as much skin of Jane Fonda as is possible in this type of movie. And depending on how you feel, that could very well be a good thing. Not even 2.75. I'm moving it up. I'm moving up. 2.75. Hey, hey let, let me adjust my tongue box before I continue on my continue my review. Uh, yes, the tongue box nice is, is what she calls her little <laughs> wristwatch, like, talking thingy, communicator, her tongue box... This movie is fantastic. I it is so un it is like I, nobody I don't know if it's unintentionally funny or it's supposed to be funny or not. I I know that there that Jane Fonda in reviews did this movie because she thought it would be fun. She thought that it was a female character that, that in a way, that needed to be shown on a screen, on the screen, be put out in, in the public. Uh, it's It became a cult classic after the 70s when it was re-released due to Star Wars and Close Encounters fame. They did a big re-release for it. Um, not only was it popular because of the science fiction aspect, but is it's popular because you see... Jane Fonda's breasts a lot in the movie, as well as a lot of weirdly creepy things in the movie. Um, the movie is just ridiculous. It's it's I I think the movie is as fun to just as fun. The dialogue makes the movie just as fun to watch as much as the movie is visually hysterical to watch. I mean everything from the goofy music montages as she's riding on a chariot that's pulled by a stingray squid looking thing as these two little these two little alien kids are stand I, I don't really know how to explain it it's it's ridiculous all the stuff is just so so dumb it's it's entertaining um i'd actually want to check out the comic to see if they got anything right at all it's constant cheesiness throughout there's not one good special effect Though the movie is mystery science theater material, it does... I, I, I mean, it's going to sound kind of goofy on my end saying that. 
the movie is held back by its editing and how the movie does these it has these really awkward like long drawn out pauses but it's still entertaining and again this is I, this is just one of those movies that's really hard to uh, for me hard difficult for me to rate uh, do I recommend it to people? Yes. Would I watch it again? Yes. Uh, so I hold this in my mind uh, in the same caliber of the FP. Though it is so unintentional, I give this one 4.25 out of 5. Where do you want to go from here, sir? Uh, how about The Immigrant? You are saving the best for last, aren't you? I am. Alright, this is not to be confused This is The Immigrant, the 2013 film Not to be confused with the 1917 movie short uh, Featuring Charlie Chaplin uh, Which I didn't know that at first And watched both But uh, I will just briefly say that the, uh, The Charlie Chaplin, very funny You should watch it, it's good, definitely good And it's only 20 minutes, so enjoy uh, the Immigrant in Question, though, is from 2013. It's the American drama film. directed by James Gray. stars Marianne Cotillard, Joaquin Phoenix, and Jeremy Renner. This is a movie about a young lady who is basically stuck between a rock and a hard place trying to get her sister out of immigration holding back in the 20s. She stumbles across a young guy who wants to help her, but basically tricks her into prostitution and all this kind of stuff. He's got a brother or a cousin or something like that. Um, and the, the cousin is played... Uh, I'm sorry. The guy she falls for, his name's Bruno, and he's played by Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, she then ends up meeting his cousin, uh, played by Jeremy Renner, and... He's an illusionist. And he legit falls in love with this wonderful girl. And then this, of course, creates a love triangle. And things get out of hand and out of control. And all revolving around trying to get this chick's sister out of immigration holding. Because she's been quarantined based on a lung infection. Here we go again. This must be the theme. It's it's character study time. Uh, These are very, very interesting characters all the way around. None of them are dynamic, per se, but all of them are very, very interesting. And it's fun to see how these characters progress as the movies go on. The problem is, there's almost, there's virtually nothing redeeming about any of these characters. Um, and and I and it's really sad to say, especially in terms of uh, Marianne Cotillard's character of uh, Iwa, you think that she has the most to gain by you see her stumbling and struggling and going through all these things, and she's just this wide-eyed immigrant, and that's how she keeps falling into these terrible situations. But at the same time, she doesn't really seem to grow as a character. She doesn't seem to get any wiser. She doesn't seem to get any... It's just always this... Uh, it's just always this desperate, oh, i got to get my sister kind of a thing, and I'll do whatever it takes to help my sister. There's more... In a movie like this, you need more than that. It can't be just that simple. Dramas don't work that way. Action movies do, 
But dramas don't. You've got to have more. And the way that they tried to develop this love triangle, the way that you have the character of Bruno, who, quite frankly, is the most interesting of all three characters. And again, I don't know if it's just because I like Joaquin Phoenix, and so I'm you know, just partial to giving him credit <laughs> for things. Um, his is really the only character that seems to actually gain any traction throughout the movie there's no real growth it's just everything kind of plays out the way that the the characters should it's not a morality tale it is just a simple story but it wasn't enough for me the character when you have a, a pretty good idea for a story premise here that makes this movie the characters really do need to be dynamic they do need to change and i don't mean compulsory which by the end of the movie you will see what I mean by a compulsory shift there's got to be something that's truly driving it and while they try to set it up that way especially in the case of Bruno again played by Joaquin Phoenix it's not really carried out so once again 2.75 I, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in on a secret I don't think any of these movies are gonna reach the, even three this week so um yeah. You know what? No, two and a half for The Immigrant. I'm backing it down. Where I was nice and bumped it up a little for Barbarella, um, the, the Immigrant should have known better. So, two and a half. It's an okay movie. I thought The Immigrant was a well-made uh, movie. It was definitely old-fashioned in mostly every way. Not only the filming, but uh, the characters were old-fashioned. The, the storytelling was old-fashioned. The opening of the movie was definitely one of the more interesting opening 15-20 minutes of movie I've seen in quite some time. I mean, there aren't too many movies about Polish immigrants coming in and what they experienced at Ellis Island and everything they had to go through. And if you were sick, no, you were not allowed to be in, uh, in you weren't allowed to enter New York. You had to hang out for months at a time in a uh, in a patient in a ward you know to overcome whatever illness you may have and if you don't overcome it within a given amount of time you well you're going back to you know wherever you came from it's hard for a movie to achieve really good melodrama and melodramatic characters and that's why i think this movie is or that's why i say that this movie is is old fashioned it's because it's the classic like Oh no, you know, I'm trying to achieve this, you know, because I have something horrible going on in my life and I can't quite do it because I have this obstacle and this obstacle and this obstacle. Now, it's not quite that over the top. It's in the same vein of that, I, I, I mean, I, I suppose. Joaquin Phoenix is in it. He's great. Uh, Jeremy Renner is in the movie for a little while and he's really good. Cotillard... She's she always gives a really good performance, regardless what she is in. If it's Batman, if it's Inception, uh, and the and Lavinia Rose, which is the first movie I uh, I first saw was the movie that I first saw her in, and uh, she's great. You know, she is one of the few actresses that can pull off. She's French, and in this movie, she's Polish, and she could totally pull off uh, being Polish, and it completely worked out and was very very believable. And with that, I definitely enjoyed. Um, One of the biggest fallbacks for the movie is its pacing. And by the end of it, it seriously becomes 
it becomes more of or, or less of a of a really good neat melodrama interesting melodrama and becomes not a chore to watch but it becomes one of those where you know you either check your watch or you pause to see how much is left and you know and and not necessarily because the movie is bad but because it's like you know i kind of want to see what happens already the movie is directed by the guy who made we are the night he knows how to him and his cinematographer know how to express a lot of things using imagery and that was another reason why i uh, i say that this feels like an old-fashioned movie is because if you look at how the extras are used and how various shots and scenes are blocked and set up it's straight out of a movie from the 30s or the 40s or even the early 50s you know just just the blocking in general how extras are situated or how a uh, background movement and talking you know how that is played out it's totally you know it's totally old-fashioned and i liked it and it actually most definitely worked well and that especially is what i enjoyed Though I definitely can see where Matt is coming from, where he says that the act, some of the acting and the characterization doesn't really go anywhere until maybe the, the very end of the movie. I definitely think Jeremy Renner's character was came in too late in the movie and was underused. Let's just say he's in maybe 30 minutes of the movie, maybe a little bit more. And so with saying all of that, and with the criticisms I give it, I man, I gotta say, this movie is really difficult to uh, to rate. I, I put down four stars. I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was well made. Uh, despite the few things that I said about it, overall, I thought it was entertaining to watch. Would I watch it again? Not today, not tomorrow, not in the next week, but, uh, you know, sometime I'll probably watch it again. I, I, I want to jump in just as a quick rebuttal, because I didn't want to interrupt you. But I would say the only thing I would have to take issue with your review on, because, I, I mean, I understand you, you, you know, that's why we have two people, because, you know, you get different views. You say that the pacing hurt it by the end of the movie. I have to take exception with that, because that's where you actually get any real movement out of the characters is at the end of the movie. So for me, I thought that the pacing was actually perfect by the end of the movie because that's when you're finally getting the payoff of anything that you've been looking forward to for this whole movie. Right. So that's why I, I say that, that the length, even for the length, is not doesn't hurt it. I just really wished I could have seen more coming out of the characters for this whole thing. It's for, for the investment of almost two hours, I think that it's important that you see stuff happening. And and when you do, and when you do get what payoffs you get by the end of the film, I think that that's where it really comes to the fore. So right, and I, you know, I definitely know. agree. And I think instead of me saying that the end of the movie is where, if I mean, if you are to say there are pacing issues, it's not at the end of the movie. I should say, uh, for me, it was where it, it was kind of like the bridge to where. When things start to build up to the ending. Fair enough. Okay, cool. Well, there you go. Real discussion. Yay. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, then that brings us to Transformers Age of Extinction, a movie I went to see with my brother-in-law a couple weeks ago. And we always bicker over who's going to pay because, you know, 
that's what brother-in-laws do and everything. You know? Well, at least brother-in-laws that enjoy the pleasure of each other's company. And so I ended up winning on the tickets. I bought the tickets, and then he ended up buying the popcorn or whatever. And I told him at the end of the movie, I said, I will not see another one of these movies unless you're buying the tickets. And even then, I'd have to think about it. It's just bad. Oh my god, this movie is bad. It's, if you, okay, it's not like, you, you know, let's see here. Let me save you damn near three hours. Dinobots. They're in the movie for about two minutes. There you go. Now, take the other 163 minutes and live your life. Holy crap. Dude, this movie, I, I know you agree. We were talking about this. This movie's bad, bro. <laughs> it's just, it's laughably bad and and even but then you stop laughing at how bad it is because it's so incredibly fucking long that you nearly want to die by the end of this movie there is one brief shining light in this movie and it is Stanley Tucci okay he's the only reason that this movie has a rating on my at all there's just nothing redeeming about it. It's too long. There's too much bullshit. None of this stuff makes sense anymore. The special effects... I mean, seriously, even for a popcorn flick, it's bad. There's this one scene where Mark Wahlberg is like... Thinks he's lost everything or whatever. And he literally screams... No! He's like going to slow motion bash. It's like the only time there's ever slow motion. Um, and you see him go to smash his fist into the ground because, oh, the, you know. And I'm laughing. I'm laughing so much because of the stupidity that people were looking at me. And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's just so bad. This is, come on. Can you not see how bad this movie is? And uh, there's, yeah. Uh, the, nothing is plausible. There's so many plot holes that if you were to drive over this movie, it would be like driving in Michigan, where the roads are just bad. And you'd be the... I mean, that's what your car would be like. Uh, it's just long. Uh, it, it's dumb. Nothing makes sense. Things that are supposed to make sense, like how Optimus Prime gets fixed, are not covered in the movie. And when I think when they realize that they didn't cover it properly, they just throw in like two lines of dialogue to try and explain it, like it somehow magically happened off screen. Uh, every, the whole concept is dumb. And. I just, I don't get it. Even for a popcorn flick. And I went and saw it on fucking discount day. In 2D. So that I wouldn't have to pay more than $5.50. And I'm still mad. I just, holy shit. This movie's terrible with the exception of Stanley Tucci. And it's just too bad that he's not in it enough. So, this movie, for me, gets 1.25. And it barely ekes out the 2.5 only because of Stanley Tucci. Other than that, I truly hated this movie. And I do not want to see another one, even if I'm getting to see it for free. I would seriously have to consider it before I would say yes. Wow, 1.25 is 
a very high rating <laughs> is still a high rating. But yeah, I don't even think Stanley Tucci was even that great because he I've seen him we've all seen him play the same character before and say the same dialogue exactly how he said it the same way oh come on it was the Steve Jobs thing come on how, how do you not like him kind of dogging on the Steve Jobs hook yeah it's, it's still it's still Transformers but oh, okay I've, I have a little list here and feel free to jump in with you know at, at any time to go more into detail or if you have any comments or anything Oh, dear God, I think we've spent too much time on it already. Knock your list out, sir. Okay. <laughs> the Wahlberg family, they're poor, but the daughter has fancy clothes, perfect hair, and she's, like, fully maked up, and she looks gorgeous. And yet they keep talking about, for the beginning of the movie, how poor they are and how their house is about to be sold. I got... Okay, I'm sorry. You're right. I do have something. How about the fact that Mark Wahlberg only appears to be, like, four years older than his supposed 17-year-old daughter? Now, I know that they explain that away like he was only 17 when he had her, but, I mean, they just look way too close to be father and daughter. Why not be brother and sister? Yeah, exactly. And, like, yeah. mom and dad died, you know, or something. Yeah, and she's, like... They're, they're both well-tanned. You know, and like everything <laughs> well, it about is Texas. Be- yeah, right? exactly. And like they, they, they're in- wow, I hit the wow, I hit the freaking <laughs> microphone. I was getting so into it. They're in Paris, Texas, and th- th- you, these people are not in Paris, Texas. I mean, there I'm sure there are beautiful people in Paris, Texas, but the I mean, even their stupid friend, their stupid moronic comedic friend who I just wanted to slit his throat every time his stupid fucking face came on screen. Those people don't exist. In real life, these people don't exist. (laughs) Poor people don't look like this. Working class people do not, you know, they're they're not like, I mean, these people, they are portrayed as well-educated supermodels who happen to live in Paris, Texas, and work on a ranch. On top of that, Mark Wahlberg's character, not only is his name Cade Yeager, who in the right mind is in a, is a kooky inventor who the, the role of a kooky inventor should only be played by a man who is at least 45 years old and with graying or white hair and preferably a mustache, you know, only those type of characters can be played, or can or only those type of people can play these kooky inventor characters. But on top of that, you name him Cade Yeager. What the hell, oh, man? And here's, here's the scary part. Here's the scary Mark Wahlberg is 43 years old. Yeah, he doesn't. He, he should be driving fast cars <laughs> and shooting machine guns. Not being a kooky inventor. It's just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Oh, and and here's something, since we're on the whole inventor kick in Paris, Texas. I like in the movie where they find Optimus Prime. Don't you like how they find Optimus Prime? In a theater. Inside of a movie theater. They find a truck, and the guy didn't even know that the truck was there. How do you not know that a semi-truck has magically appeared? How the fuck did he even get inside the building when there's no apparent structural damage that would have been necessary for Optimus Prime to be in the building in the first place. 
Also, how'd they get it out? Answer me that, Michael Bay. How the fuck did you get the truck out of the theater? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> these, these are just the things I think of when you keep bringing this shit up. I know. I, I didn't know. even think about that. I, I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm in awe <laughs> of that realization. But on top of that, no, okay, there, there could be the question of why Cade Yeager is building these little Johnny Five-esque looking robots. <laughs> you said Johnny Five. That's fucking awesome. Not only can he afford it, but how does he come across these obvious robot mechanisms, you know, like 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 the servos, the, the eyes and all that stuff. Those are obviously for robots. You can't just build it out of a paper out of a plastic cup, you know? Like they they looked professional. It was just retarded. It was ridiculous. They were obvious robot parts and th- these are poor folk instead of spending money on his daughter and her makeup, he's obviously spending it on servos and stuff. Okay, uh let's I see guess. here. I'm just at this point. I'm literally getting reminded of MST3K. Do you remember that when you listen to the to the ditty, the opening ditty of MST3K? It was if you're wondering how he eats and breathes and other science facts, la la la. Repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. <laughs> Maybe they should just put that in all Michael Bay movies from now on. Repeat to yourself, it's just a film. I should really just read. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Kate Yeager. Again, I wrote this down. Kate Yeager is his name. <laughs> it's like from Bowfinger, how, the, how uh, Steve Martin's, oh you know, his, the movie he's trying to make in Bowfinger. The Eddie Murphy character, his name is Kincaid, you know. Oh my god, it's the superhero. The, the guy another who's going to Frank Oz movie, by the way. Oh yeah, no, exa- that. yeah, but that, exactly, it's another Frank Oz movie. But Kincaid, you know, it's the, I mean, oh god, it's a caricature of itself, Michael Bay. There's no <laughs> sparkle or real interaction when there's a a talking scene between human beings and the Transformers. It is obvious that these are people standing in front of a blue screen or a green screen or standing in front of... You know, it, it doesn't look like they're looking at anything. It looks like they're looking past things. You know, over the shoulder of a Transformer. Every time there, there's an interaction between the two. It's so obvious. Oh, yes. Uh, it's tr- the, the, the movie is trying to be goofy, you know, to have that cartoony feel to it. It's supposed to be goofy, high-tech, cartoony, and serious... All at the same time, which does not work. You cannot have goofy these goofy robots, you know that that Kincaid that uh, that Cade Yeager builds in his huge shed. But at the same time, you have these guys holding up a freaking gun to his daughter's head. I, it's ridiculous. Um, let's see. You're supposed to have comedy in action as, as a breaking away from the crazy suspense. But you cannot have suspense when every second you have these stupid one-liners, you know? And it's like they, they, for their stupid friend who gets killed within the first t- 30 minutes of the movie, every time you see the character, he has these stupid one-liners. It's really dumb. And then it's like they purposely did that because they knew this character was going to die 30 minutes into the movie. It was dumb. I give this movie 0.25 stars. Whoa! Damn near the first zero star rating for Tim. Point two five. Wow. I mean, it's close to being zero stars, but uh, there's 
there's one shot in the movie that I like, that I, I enjoyed, and it was on all this promotional, you know, material and stuff, so I didn't really need to watch the movie to see it, but it's of the big ship over the farmhouse, and I'm sure if you saw it in IMAX, it looks stunning, and you saw the robot walking on the street as this huge-ass ship is behind it. But point two five, the movie is horrible. Horrible. <laughs> it really is. I, yeah. Again, uh, the the only reason I gave it the one point two five at all was because of Stanley Tucci. So that ought to tell you something. I'm I'm that one character. It still hated it. It's just one hint, one eek above hated it, and uh, then Tim's giving it a point two five. Not even Stanley Tucci can do it for him. One scene, give it a one, give it a point two five. That's amazing. Wow, this is definitely the lowest rated movie I think we've ever had. So, yeah, don't see this movie. Whatever you do. All right. So next week's movies are going to be UHF because we're going to be celebrating the uh, 25th anniversary of UHF, which is also coinciding. This is also the week that we found out that. Uh, um, as Willis is capping off the week, I guess, that we found out that Weird Al got his first number one album. So congratulations to Weird Al there. I was one of the people who bought it, so I contributed. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, we're So yeah, so UHF turns 25. We're going to be covering that. Next, uh, we have Guardians of the Galaxy, and then finally The Iger Sanction. And those are the movies for next week. So I guess we're up to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, as always, are still the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can also search up Search us up on Facebook there, and of course, subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So, until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Diane Keaton, I get to say this. I'm not a wine connoisseur, but I do like a glass or two at night. And this is your host, Tim. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.